The sermon text for today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. And this may be found in your pew Bible on page 822. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Surely, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Father, we are your temple now. We are your dwelling in the spirit because your son has cleansed this people And now we long to behold your beauty and the beauty of our Savior. And so we pray for the ministry of the Spirit to make these things known to us again, to open the eyes of our hearts. And we pray particularly today for the, the lost and the un 
saved as of yet, that you in your great mercy would make this the day of their salvation and draw them in your omnipotent grace to your Son. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we were thinking last week about Peter and uh, one of the things and, and his relationship to the church and one of the things that we uh, said was that um, that when Jesus builds the church, he builds it as, uh, as what I called a single-story building. And that's not, uh, that's not really about elevation, you know, in terms of altitude or height. It's really about who's being elevated by that story. That the church that Jesus builds, and we saw this, Jesus picks Peter to be his rock, not to elevate Peter, but to elevate himself. And the story that Jesus is telling in the church that he builds, there's really only room for one story in the church that Jesus builds, and that story is his. It's Jesus Christ. There's only room. Uh, Jesus builds his church. Let me say it this way. Jesus builds his church and fills his church with so much of his own beauty and his own glory that there is no room left over for the spiritual pride of men. And that's a good thing. I was thinking about this this week, and I remembered how in uh, John Bunyan's The Pil- Pilgrim's Progress, I remembered how, uh, how Bunyan describes the church in The Pilgrim's Progress. Do you guys remember this? This would be a good trivia question. Uh, it really shouldn't be. It's not trivial. Uh, Bunyan describes uh, the church. He calls the church the house beautiful. And uh, when I thought of that, I thought of Psalm 27, a 4, uh, where David says, One thing I have asked of the Lord. I wonder if you started a sentence that way. I wonder how you'd finish it. Well, this is how David finishes it. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after. So I'm not just going to ask it. I'm going to pursue it. This is what I really want, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or to meditate in his temple. In other words, David sees a link just like Bunyan does. I think Bunyan got the house beautiful from Psalm 27.4. I can't prove it. But notice how David makes exactly the same length that, that, that Bunyan does, which is that the house of the Lord, where God's presence is and where God's people are, that that's the place where the beauty of the Lord is to be known. And so this morning and then again next week, I want us to reflect on the beauty of the church that Jesus builds. And this morning we're going to begin at the very beginning because the beauty of the church Jesus Jesus builds is ultimately the builder's beauty. Right? Every other beauty in the church and of the church is beautiful because the builder is beautiful. The house is beautiful because the builder is beautiful. 
Jesus Christ is the most beautiful thing about the church. This great I who promises in verse 18, I will build my church. It is his beauty that he builds his church to display. It is his beauty, not ours, that he creates the he makes the church like this great canvas he's it, we are the king's canvas and he paints his glory on us that is why we are the house of beautiful and so this morning i want to i want to admire and i want to revel together with you in three aspects of the beauty of jesus christ that are on display in the church there's the beauty of his person There's the beauty of his purpose for his church. And there's the beauty of his passion for his church. And I should just say right at the beginning that nobody loves the church more than the Savior who died for her. So you have no excuse in the end for being cynical about the church that can survive the love of Christ for his bride. You cannot outweigh what he's endured from or for the church. So let's think first about the beauty of his person. And what I, some of you may have wondered why I haven't talked about the Son of Man yet from uh, verse 13. We've been in this, we've been in this passage now, I think for about five weeks. And I've been holding back how Jesus identifies himself in verse 13 until we got to this point. Notice that the I who builds the church, who promises to build the church in verse 18, is the same as the Son of Man in verse 13. Uh, Peter has just confessed in verse 16 that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he was right to do that, and Jesus uh, commends him and celebrates that confession in verse 17 uh, with his uh, declaration of the blessing on him. But where did this conversation begin? It began in verse 13. Notice, uh, go back with me to verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, it's Peter who calls Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. But when Jesus refers to himself, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, 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 many of you know that this is Jesus' favorite name for referring to himself. And in the Gospels, you will only see Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. And over the four Gospels, he calls himself the Son of Man at least 80 times. It is a big deal. It is how Jesus thinks of himself. And there are a couple of reasons, I think, that Jesus prefers this term to refer to himself. The first is for the obvious reason that when he calls himself the Son of Man, guess what he's saying about himself? He's a man. Just like you and I, we are human beings. But that name also works on another level. It works on uh, uh, the level of invoking or evoking the memory 
of a very important figure in the Old Testament. The highest, most glorious figure in the Old Testament other than Yahweh himself. And we see that figure in Daniel chapter 7. And so I want to encourage you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Now I know for some of you this is review, but it's good review. So, so hang in there with me. If you go to uh, page 745 in your pew Bible, you'll get to where uh, I, I'm going to be reading from. Uh, Daniel 7. Uh, really, we're going to be focusing on verses 13 and 14. This is a very interesting chapter in the Old Testament because there's really uh, two panels. Uh, Daniel, of course, you remember, is in exile. Um, and uh, initially uh, under the Babylonians. And in exile, uh, Daniel is given uh, uh, this vision, okay? Uh, essentially in Uh, the heavenly throne room. It's a vision of the heavenly throne room, and it has two panels. He sees two figures. It's just like Revelation 4 and 5. In Revelation 4, John is ushered into heaven and sees essentially the Father seated on the throne. In Revelation 5, John sees the Lamb, okay? So this is a setup and a parallel uh, for Revelation 4 and 5. And what Daniel is shown is in the first part of chapter 7, he sees the Ancient of Days seated on his throne. And that, that is essentially the figure of the Father. And then, coming to verse 13, now a new figure appears. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. So he approaches the throne. Now what happens to him? And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Every single one of those things about the Son of Man's kingdom has already been said multiple times in the book of Daniel about God and his kingdom. So I want you to notice three things here about this Son of Man figure. One, notice that he is both an exalted heavenly figure, he comes on the clouds of heaven, and at the very same time, he is also an earthly figure. He's like a Son of Man. Number two, I want you to see that this heavenly, earthly figure is made Lord over all peoples and over all of history. That everything that belongs to the Ancient of Days, the Ancient of Days gives to this heavenly, earthly figure. Everything which earlier in Daniel has been ascribed to God is now given to this figure. And then third, I want you to turn over, or actually it's on the same page. If you go to verse 27, and the kingdom and the dominion 
and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven. That's everything that has been given to the Son Son of Man. Now notice, what has been given by the Ancient of Days to the Son of Man now is given also, notice this, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Now that is awesome. That is just so awesome. Do you see what the throne of God is like? Do you see how generous the Ancient of Days is? Do you see he is generous first to this Son of Man? And then through the Son of Man and the Son of Man himself are then exceedingly generous to the people of God. There is this welcoming them into the kingdom of the living God. It is absolutely staggering that the things that were shown in this chapter, but you know there's something that's not explained, a couple of things, which is very telling. First, here's what we're not shown. We're not shown either why or how the Son of Man is given his kingdom by the Ancient of Days. You see, all verse 13 and 14 describe is that the kingdom is given, but they don't say why, and they don't say how the Son of Man comes into his kingdom. So that's a big open question. And the second thing is we don't see how or why the Son of Man's kingdom is then given over to the people of the saints of the Most High so that they participate in his inheritance? Now, those are big questions. And there is no answer given in the Scriptures until we get to verse 21 of Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus, Matthew says, began... So turn with me back to Matthew 16... I was about to read from verse 21 in Daniel 7, and I realized that was going to be highly disorienting to you. Verse 21. And we looked at this verse a few weeks ago. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You see, it's not until we get to that verse with that amazing fourfold must, you remember that? That we get the explanation for how and why it is that the Son of Man is going to come into his kingdom. Jesus is saying two massive things to his disciples in the flow of this passage about the builder of the church, that he, in fact, is the Son of Man who has come to receive his inheritance from the Father, and that the way he is going to come in to his kingdom is by going to Jerusalem and there suffering many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and being killed. In other words, he's going to come into his inheritance. This glorious figure is going to come into his inheritance through a path of humbling and suffering. And it's not just humbling and suffering. <clears throat> Excuse me, it is more particularly 
He who is the judge of all peoples, I want you to notice this, He is the Lord of all peoples, and He is going to die as the subject of a judicial execution. The judge of all is going to be judged. Now, I just got to tell you, I don't understand how, how you could ever think the Bible was boring. And I don't understand how you could ever think that the Old Testament had nothing to do with the Christian life. And I don't understand how anyone cannot be completely exhilarated by the reality that in every space in the Old Testament, Jesus' glory is just being pushed through by the Holy Spirit. It makes no sense apart from the Son of God's ministry. This is awesome that the way the Son of Man is going to gain his kingdom is by making himself the object of a judicial execution. And he's going to be judged not by not to answer the justice of men, but to answer the justice ultimately of God against the sins of men. That the case against this is what this is see, this is the heart of Christianity, my friends. It is this wonder that God, that men sin and it is God, the Son of God, who suffers. The case against us, the case, the case against the Son of Man, against Jesus in Jerusalem is in reality God's case against us because of our sin. And Jesus is saying, this is how the Son of Man is going to come into his kingdom. And this is how you, as the people of the saints of the Most High, are going to participate in the kingdom. It is through my willing, self-substitutionary sacrifice to stand between you and the consequences of your sin, to stand between you and the holy justice of God. I am going to give my life as the Son of Man for the sins of men. Oh, that is beautiful. The Son of... This is, this is why, right? I mean, this is why Jesus says it in John 10 and 17. You know this. I just want to connect the dots. You know this verse. I just want to connect the dots with what we're thinking about right now. For this reason, the Father loves me, Jesus says. You remember this? John 17. What is the reason the Father loves Jesus? Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus is describing the path to his kingdom and it leads through his cross. How could we ever imagine that there would be any other beauty in the church that would compete with that? You see, this is the builder. Behold the builder of his church who is willing 
to give his life for her, who is willing to purchase her with his blood, who is willing to pour himself out to the last drop on the cross for her. That is the beauty that radiates throughout the church of Jesus Christ across the ages. It is that willing sacrifice of himself to shield his bride. That is the beauty that shapes the church. And what we see is that the church that Jesus builds, she is his personal labor of love. And everything that we have comes to us through his willingness to be the one who answers for us in God's case against us. That thrills me. That draws my heart out to love him more. It draws my heart out, friends, to love the church more. How he values the church. That brings us to our second point, which is the beauty of his purpose for his church. Notice, Jesus says in verse 18, I will build my church. That's quite an announcement. It's like Jesus' mission statement. It's like his purpose statement. And it reminds us that the church, building the church, is Jesus Christ's great labor of love in history. That this is his work in history. Between Jesus' ascension and his second coming, what is it that Jesus is doing in history? Jesus is telling us in verse 18, he's going to be building his church among the nations. That's what he's doing. We live in the age in which Jesus is building his church. You know why Emmanuel Presbyterian Church exists? Because Jesus kept that promise. It's not because a bunch of people got together and the RPCES originally sent a planner and then the PCA sent a planner. That is not why this church exists. This church exists because Jesus Christ is keeping his promise in verse 18. Why does our budget get filled every year? Because Jesus is keeping his promise. Why are we having worship in this place today? Because Jesus Christ is keeping his promise in verse 18. This is his great work in history, my friends. It is the building of his church. And then the church that he builds is not a building. It's a people. It's not an affinity group where we, we gather like we have a shared common interest in Jesus and so we, we congregate. That is not what is happening here. We must have eyes to see the way Jesus, to see our, our congregation the way Jesus sees it and the way he sees it. If you put on the lenses of verse 18, what you see is that the reason we are here is because every single one of us is a living stone which Jesus, the great builder, is bringing to the worksite and putting into place. It is not you who are handling yourself, brother and sister. It is Jesus who is putting you into place. The church is not like a club. It's not like a a, a social community center. No. 
The church, my friends, is the new humanity that Jesus is building in history. He is the last Adam. He is the faithful Adam. And underneath him, in all the power of his work, he is assembling from all the nations a new humanity, the humanity of the new Adam, restored to God, the dwelling of God's Spirit. That's what the church is. Notice that what Jesus is doing is totally different from how we as Americans have been shaped by our culture to think about what Christianity is. We tend to think we're Western, and on top of that, we're American. So we love that, you know, our heritage gets in the way here. Okay? It gets in the way. Because our culture has taught us to think of ourselves primarily as individuals who are isolated. I have constitutional rights that belong to me. Well, that's true. Just don't bring that paradigm into uh, the church. Because what's very clear is that Jesus is not about saving atomistic, like, the, like isolated atoms, A-T-O-M-S, of people in different places. Like ping, save somebody here. Ping, save somebody there. Ping, save somebody there. That is not what Jesus is doing. That's what we want him to do, so I don't have to relate to these other atoms. That ain't what he's doing. He's building his church He's building, notice this, a corporate vision. And the vision is not of an institution. It's of a new, restored humanity. You know, the first night in Pilgrim's Progress, when uh, Pilgrim makes it to uh, the House Beautiful, and they, he, uh, he has a wonderful meal, and they have fellowship with the people in the house, and then he goes to sleep, and he sleeps very well. And then he wakes up the next morning after his first night in the House Beautiful, which is Bunyan's vision of the church. And he wakes up, and this song just breaks off of his lips. And he just he immediately sings. And do you know what he calls the church? You know how he describes the church in his song? I love this. Already, the next door to heaven. The church of Jesus Christ is to be the place on this earth where what it means to live under the rule of Christ, the place where the character of his rulership is most clearly seen. The church of Jesus Christ is meant to be the place that tells the story of the kind of king that Jesus is and what it means to be his people. You know, I read it yesterday in Psalm 22 where David says, you who are holy are enthroned on the praises of Israel, speaking to the Lord. Now, that's such an interesting phrase. It stopped me in my tracks for an hour. Because you say, what do you mean? Enthroned on the praises of Israel. 
And God was already king. He doesn't need us to coronate him. So what's David saying? And I think what David's saying is that the praises of God's people make God's throne visible. When we worship him, we are declaring his beauty. We are filling the space and filling our attention and devoting our energies to the proclamation of his beauty. And it becomes possible to see him as king. And I think that's exactly what Bunyan is talking about. It's always the builder's beauty that is the beauty inside the church. And this is Jesus' great purpose in history to build his church. It's amazing. Now think about one particular implication of this, friends, and this will make us all feel uncomfortable, including me. The implication I have in mind is that the church, this means that the church is the Jesus-designed context for the Christian life. So many of us think about the church as a part of the Christian life, like you have in the core the Christian identity, and you have little spurs off of that core, you know, prayer, Bible, you know, fellowship with other Christians, all that kind of stuff, and one of those spokes, if you will, is the church. That is exactly the wrong model. The model that Jesus is describing here is, listen, what I'm going to do in history is I'm going to assemble, on the basis of my work, I'm going to assemble this new humanity. I'm the last Adam. And I am going to share my kingdom with this people. And my church isn't just a part of the Christian life. My church, the church that I build, is, the church, is, is what I design to be the context for the lives of my people. That will be how my people flourish. I don't just gather atomistic individuals and then come and make house calls to each of them. I assemble them. I'm a shepherd. I assemble them into one flock that is diverse. I pour out the fruits of my victory upon them, and the fruits of my victory are not one-dimensional. They are multi-dimensional. I do not create clones. I create sons and daughters of God who have different gospel fingerprints and different faces. There are no such things as gospel twins. And in that assembly... I make a home for my children and an environment for them to grow. This is where they will flourish. Now, I know the objections to this because I meet them all the time. So objection number one is this. Hey, I love the universal church. Well, who needs the local church? What I'm passionate about is the local church. You're so provincial and you're so narrow. This is exactly what I would expect a pastor to say. Of course, of course you're elevating the local church. Hey, bring it on. Okay? Let's have this discussion. You want to have this discussion? Let's have this discussion. Because think about it this way. If you think that it's possible for you to have a meaningful relationship with the universal church, all Christians, without having a relationship to 
Christians locally in a congregation. If you think that it's possible for you to be passionate about God's kingdom without being passionate about or committed to the local church, if that's kind of your your orientation, then let me ask you how you would respond to me if I said something like the following, okay? So now I'll let you counsel me. What if I said to you, particularly in this day and age, you know what? I am so passionate about the cause, the institution of traditional marriage. It's under attack in our culture. It's undermined in our culture. This, if we do not defend this institution, uh, there are going to be all kinds of cultural consequences. But while I am passionate about the institution of traditional marriage, don't ask me about investing in my own marriage. Don't ask me about my marriage to Maria. I want to keep it up over here where I talk about traditional marriage. Now, if I said that to you, you'd probably have two responses. Response number one is you'd probably call me foolish, wouldn't you? You'd also, well, actually, you might have three. The first thing you'd do is you'd speed dial Maria on the cell phone, okay? And rightfully so. Because that perspective that I just articulated, you would be right to call me foolish. And you would also be right to suspect that what I was doing was evading my concrete responsibilities. Friends, it is always so easy to love and proclaim your loyalty to an abstraction. Because that's ne- that abstraction is never going to cause you to sacrifice. It's never going to expose your sin. You're never going to be pushed by the universal church into a place where you are exposed as a sinner in your weakness. You're always going to be a hero in that realm. And guess what? That is not good for you. And that is contrary to Jesus' will. What can you possibly know about the universal church without knowing your entry point into the universal church, which is the local church? What can I possibly know about the institution of marriage apart from the entry point that God has given me through my own marriage? So please, uh, look at your own heart there. Second objection is, I love Jesus, but not his church. And I've heard this one. Boy, I, I get this a lot from friends of mine who are professing Christians and who uh, haven't darkened the door of a church in years. And they will say things like this. Man, I love Jesus, but boy, his people, they are a piece of work. And I'm going to be much happier if I stay away from his people. Sometimes uh, that is born out of some, some hardship from the past in the church. Sometimes it is. Uh, And sometimes it's not. But you know what? Either way, uh, let me respond to that the way I've responded to it. This is somebody, right, who says, hey, I want a relationship with Jesus. I love Jesus, but I don't want a relationship with with his church, okay? And I've said this to people before. I've said, okay. So I understand you want a relationship, you want a, you want a relationship with Jesus, but not with the church. How would you respond, or how do you think I would respond if you came to me and said, Hey, Mike, I really like you. I really appreciate you. I even love you. And I'd like to have a relationship with you because I respect you. I admire you. I appreciate your counsel, blah, 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 blah. I love the way you do your yard. Okay, it's a hypothetical. You can tell already, Okay. 
But what I really want is I want a relationship with you, but please, only on one condition. I don't want to have anything to do with Maria. How do you think I'd respond to that? And I had one neighbor tell me, you'd clobber me. I said, you got it. Why? Because I am one flesh with Maria Francis. There is no Mike to be known. There is no Mike to be accessed. There is no Mike that you can relate to apart from the Mike who is in a one flesh union with Maria Francis. And you can't have Mike apart from Maria. Your relationship with me will only be as good as your relationship with my bride. So how can we possibly imagine that we could love Jesus Christ without loving his beloved? How could you possibly imagine that you could grow in Christ's likeness when what it means to be like Christ is that you love the bride? Now, I know at this point you're saying, yeah, but Mike, so far, all you've said applies only to the universal church. How are you bringing this home to the local church? I was hoping you were going to ask that. Do you know what the single most important formative lesson about the local church I've ever learned is? It happened when I was preaching through Revelation and when I was in the, when we were in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And I saw what's interesting about those churches is that of the seven, only two do not receive any criticism from Jesus. Okay? Smyrna and Philadelphia for those of you keeping track. Numbers two and six. The other five churches are an absolute mess. There's doctrinal compromise and there's moral compromise in in the other five. And they receive criticism. They receive rebukes from Jesus. And yet, when Jesus described this, so those are seven churches, they are seven local congregations. Okay, And when Jesus describes those churches at the end of Revelation 1, do you know what he calls them? All seven of them. The seven golden lampstands. Now those are his words. He doesn't say the two golden lampstands for Smyrna and Philadelphia. He calls all seven of them his golden lampstands. And he doesn't just say... Notice, it's lampstands, plural. He doesn't say the seven lampstands, implying that there are multiple lampstands, they're plural, but they're not precious. Nor does he say the one golden lampstand, singular, implying that while it's precious, it's not plural. In other words, it's a universal church. No. He doesn't do either of those. What he says is, he refers to them as his seven golden lampstands, meaning that they are both plural and precious, and guess what? They're local. 
So Jesus's view of the church as the context within which his people are intended to flourish is definitely uh, focused on the local church. The local church, now I want to tell you, is the personal labor of love of Jesus Christ and is his beloved. This local church, Emmanuel Presbyterian Church, is the personal labor of love of Jesus Christ. This local church is Jesus Christ's beloved. So who in heaven and on earth do we think that we are to think or feel or act any different from that? This is how much Jesus loves his church, my friends. He has, we come to our last point, he has a passion for his church. A great passion for her. You know, you know I love pronouns. That's, that's the only hobby I have is pronouns. So I just lay that up on the table again. And yes, at one level it's pathetic, right? But it has been the Lord's kindness to me because the gospel comes through pronouns. How differently verse 18 would feel if what Jesus said is, I will build the church. And that's not what he says. He promises that his work in history is that he is going to build my church. She's mine, he's saying. She will always be mine. I, the royal son of man, the Lord of heaven and earth, the heir of the kingdom of the nations, whose dominion is everlasting, who, whose dominion no power can ever overthrow, I, the exalted Christ, the Son of the living God, I will bind myself to my church. She will be mine. I will take her for my own. I will bring her to myself. I will provide for her. I will protect her. I will betroth her to me. I will give up all that I am for her. She will be mine in every sense of the word. I will never leave her. She will be mine. I will never forsake her. She will be mine. I will never fail her. She will be mine forever. My love for her will never diminish. It will always wax and never wane. She is mine. I will assume full responsibility for her welfare. Nothing about her well-being will ever slip through the cracks because I am the Lord of all and she is mine and the cross is proof 
that I will spare no expense. I will endure any temptation. I will incur any loss that she might be enriched. I will not hide any part of myself from her. She is mine. I will withhold nothing that is mine from her. She is mine. All that is mine I will make over to her, and all that is hers I will take in the form of liabilities and follies, and I will take them, and I will absorb them. She is my church. Friends, when Paul describes the church in Ephesians 1, do you know what he calls her? Right at the end of Ephesians 1. Turn with me there. Verse 22 and 23. It's page 976 in your pew Bible. And he, that's the Father, put all things under his, that's Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Now notice the definition of the church in verse 23, which is his body. Do you remember what Adam says to Eve? when he wakes up after the Lord's surgery. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The first poetry in the Bible is a love song. And Adam is just rehearsing for what Jesus Christ says over the church and what we're going to hear him sing over us to the farthest reaches of eternity. On the cross, he sang, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. What is hers, I now take for mine. All of her liabilities, all of her liabilities to God for her sin, I now take in my own body on the tree because I have betrothed her to myself in a one flesh union. There is no me to be had apart from my bride because I have declared it my will that it be so. The church, his body, the church the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is just staggering because you know what that means about us? That we are the fullness of Jesus Christ. That means that Jesus gave his fullness for us. There, there was no part of his treasure or his glory that he drew a line around and he said, I'm going to keep this for me. I'll give everything else for her. No, no, he emptied himself. He considered the needs of his bride more important than his own needs. That's the mind of Christ, my friends. He didn't segregate anything that was his to insulate it against the follies and the infidelities of his people. No, he opened up the treasure house of his glory and made it all available for us because there was no other 
way. This is how much Jesus loves his church. This is the beauty of the builder of the church of Jesus Christ. This is the beauty of the builder of Emmanuel Presbyterian Church. He held nothing back from us. And then when he goes to heaven, he pours out his spirit upon us so that all the fruits of his victory are now on display in the canvas of this people. If we had eyes to see the church the way Jesus sees the church, we would love her because of what she shows us about him. Not, it's not about us, but what kind of king would assemble people like us? What kind of king is it who would pour his generosity out upon us? What kind of king is it who week after week would announce with joy in his voice an amnesty for sinners who will come in to him? That's a great king. And in the gospel, what it means also for Jesus to be, for the church to be the fullness of Jesus Christ is that now, having betrothed himself to us, having paid the ultimate bride price, having paid the most princely of sums for his bride, which was nothing less than the life of the prince of life himself, having done all that, Jesus Christ now, for the rest of history, refuses to consider himself full apart from his bride. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is the loveliest story there is. But unlike other lovely stories, usually, I mean, if you think about it, the lovelier a story is, we tend to guard ourselves and we think, well, okay, it's a lovely story, but the more lovely it is, the less true it likely is. But in the gospel, those two things loveliness and truthfulness, they come together and they kiss. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the loveliest story that we discover is also the truest story. Friends, the builder of that story is calling every single one of us this morning to his side. And I pray, I pray that you will heed and welcome his invitation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you We thank you for your patience with us because it's very easy for us to get lost and to become preoccupied with flaws in the church. And so it's very kind of you to pull us back and to fix our eyes on her beauty, a given beauty your beauty given to her. We give you thanks and pray in your name. Amen.